Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Small Biz Gone Viral, a podcast for and about small business owners working through the pandemic. I'm your host, Grant LeBeau. Each week, we interview a small business owner about how the pandemic has affected their business and the humans who run it, discussing expectations for 2020, what actually happened, and what comes next. Today's guest is Albert Chen, who pivoted from a blockchain moonshot to one of the world's preeminent makers of high-end, stylish face masks. But first, our fun fact. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, better known as the OECD, is predicting 5.6% global GDP growth this year, followed by 4% in 2022. The world averaged 2.8% growth in the four years leading up to the pandemic. So, long story short, a world without a raging pandemic should bounce back quickish. Time now for our weekly quantitative snapshot facts and figures. Let's start with some good news. The U.S. is now administering an average of almost two and a half million vaccine shots per day. Nearly three months of vaccination efforts and 118 million administered shots are starting to pay off with the daily death rate the week of March 19th falling to a third of what it was at the end of January, just seven weeks prior. However, the number of daily cases only fell by less than 2% last week. While the U.S. is seemingly turning a corner, Europe is struggling through a current surge in cases. At the front of the vaccine line, the U.S. seems on its way to a return to normalcy as early as this summer. In contrast, poorer countries may be waiting three or four more years. The U.S. stock market saw stocks continue to live in record territory, with both the Dow and S&P finishing last week just shy of their all-time peaks. This in spite of weekly unemployment numbers, up 6% from last week to 770,000. It is this podcast host's humble opinion that a true return to normalcy, that's in air quotes, a true return to normalcy won't happen until jobs stabilize and weekly unemployment numbers are in the 200,000 range, back where they belong. Today's guest is Albert Chen, coming to us from Hong Kong. Albert Chen has 10-plus years of experience in both the digital and physical spaces, having founded several e-commerce and blockchain startups since 2011. He co-founded MaskLab in March 2020, synergizing a decade of experience in manufacturing, software development, and digital marketing, along with his father's 30-plus years of mechanical engineering and manufacturing expertise. Albert is also the creator of COVIDKPI.com, a website that tracks key performance indicators of the coronavirus pandemic. A man of many talents, Albert will share how he pivoted so quickly from blockchain to becoming a face mask manufacturer with worldwide reach. Let's get to it. Albert, thanks so much for being here. Grant, thanks for having me. This is exciting. I've never interviewed someone so far away. You're just waking up. I'm getting ready here to go to bed. Uh, You're coming to us from Hong Kong. Um, I'm actually in Taiwan right now. Um, Oh, you are? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I came here in uh, January because we opened up uh, a few stores and actually we opened up a factory in Taiwan as well. So uh, just taking care of the business here. I I can't even keep up and we're, we're just getting started. 
<laughs> as we just get started, because we always start with our pre-COVID set, th- this is going to be a bit of a unique interview because your pre-COVID um, work life is so different than what it looks like now. But let's go ahead and, and start the same way that we always do. What were you doing in 2019? So me personally, in 2019, I was uh, I was running a, a crypto blockchain startup um, called GenoS. Um, and what we were looking to do was to put uh, the genome data that is very valuable uh, to the world um, and, and create something uh, like universal basic income to people who have it. Uh, so people can generate income, uh, passive income from the data that they, they are innately born with. So. That, that is <laughs> such an, an interesting idea. And I feel like such a uh, representative of the times, like including crypto, uh, universal basic income, UBI, uh, you know, uh, something that that's based off genome sequencing, like all of these things that almost didn't even exist conceptually until, you know, <laughs> at least the last few decades, if not the last few years. Yeah, it's got all the right buzzwords. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So that was 2019. Your background is in crypto and a couple of other things, right? You've had other startups. Right. So yeah, um, crypto I got into, I think, uh, five years ago. Um, but before that, uh, I started my career really in 2010, uh, 2011, so around 10 years ago. Uh, and I, my main business was in uh, e-commerce startups. So my first business uh, 10 years ago was a home organization brand called Umbrands. Um, and uh, we sold online and we were, uh, and our products were sold in most of the big box retailers in the U.S. for a while before um, Elmer's Glue, uh, Elmer's products, that, that company came in and uh, bought our IP. So uh, they turned it into Elmer's Freestyle, um, which I don't think is that big anymore, but uh, this was around 2015. But it was big enough for you to exit. Correct, correct. And because this is going to tie into your story later, what is your family's background in business? Right. Um, So my family has been in manufacturing uh, for 30, 40 years, uh, specifically my dad, actually. Um, And he started a furniture, um, outdoor furniture uh, manufacturing company in 2001. So just 20 years ago. Um, And this is something that I helped with on and off uh, when I first graduated from college and in the middle, I would, I would uh, dabble in and just uh, kind of be involved with. Um, so this company is named 3i Corporation. Uh, that's th- the number three and I, um, and that's the, 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 the holding company behind mask lab. Right. So, and your, your, where is the family business based? Where's three I based? The, the family business is based, uh, the headquarters is based in Hong Kong, but we have manufacturing plants in, uh, China and in the U S uh, specifically South Carolina. Got it. And ballpark ish number of employees. Um, about, I would say about 200 or so. Okay. So tw- been around for 20 years, uh, locations in the U S and in Hong Kong, 200 ish employees. So a very established company. Is that fair to say? I would say a medium sized company. Yeah. Okay. 
Well, for a company <laughs> called, or for, for a podcast called Small Biz Gone Viral, uh, your medium-sized company is uh, outsized uh, on, the, on the big end of the spectrum, I think. I got it. Got it. Uh, so the, you know, the reason why I, I bring up your family's background is obviously because we're, we'll get into that more, uh, about the transition, mm-hmm. but before we do, what were kind of your, your goals for 2020, um, as far as your, your blockchain, um, as far as kind of where you saw things going, where you'd be living, um, and right. kind of next steps for your business. Right. So at the time I was in uh, Los Angeles um, and I intended to, uh, we had just um, finished. um, So we had just finished our first pre-seed round uh, at uh, the the startup. And we were hoping to um, use our demo to raise a seed round. Um, But around March uh, when COVID hit, a lot of uh, a lot of the meetings were canceled, and a lot of uh, what we had planned was just not realistic at the time. Um, which is funny, funnily enough, because a year later, now all of that is coming back alive um, because of who, who knows because of what because of the stock market rally, uh, because of the the crypto market rally. But now investment interest is on the rise again. So uh, we'll see what we'll do about that. But uh, right. Well, don't, time, don't you worry. We're yeah. we're gonna have plenty of time to talk about what what you think are the are the next steps. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I, it's funny. I feel like this is the the hardest part about doing the pre COVID thing is that it's now so far distant almost in our memories because we've now lived over a year. In yeah. the, like in the U.S., I think uh, yesterday was the the one year anniversary when the declared the national, it, right? of when the national yeah. emergency was declared. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but let's see where were were you in hong kong or were you, were you in la when the uh when covid first kind of uh rose to prominence okay so i was in hong kong at first uh in late january that was when it was that was when it was first detected in in china and people were starting to notice it um but we thought it was only going to stay in china um i came to taiwan for um lunar new year holidays uh just because all my family's here um, and then that was when it was getting really, really serious in China and they had shut down Wuhan and they had shut down all the cities. They couldn't let uh, people wouldn't be let out. And we were just kind of watching from afar thinking, wow, this is really bad, uh, but probably will never leave China. Um, and it, even if it comes here, it'll probably never go, get back to the U.S. So around like late February, uh, my wife and I uh, packed up our bags and said, hey, See you guys later. We're uh, getting away from this virus. We're going back to the U.S. And <laughs> <laughs> that's, that sounds really funny now, right? But uh, uh, we landed, I think, around March 1st or March 2nd. Um, yeah, I, I think within five days of us landing, the, big, the first biggest news was we woke up and the, the NBA was canceled. Um, and then later on, uh, we ha- actually, we had some ski trips planned and those were all canceled. They, uh, we got called by the resort and they're like, yeah, we're closing down the resort. We'll get you your money back. And that's when it hit us that this was really serious. This is going to affect the entire world. Um, we stuck around uh, for a little bit, just kind of evaluating the situation to see how long this would last. And I think by the end of March, we were we decided that this was probably going to last a while in the U.S. and we didn't see things uh, coming in control anytime soon. So, uh, 
So we got on a plane and flew back to Asia and we had to do our first 14 day quarantine in the beginning of April. Um, and yeah, that was the beginning of our COVID journey. Uh, what, what a, a perfectly uh, succinct way to, to describe it. The beginning of the COVID journey. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I want to hear all about the, 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 the complete journey where, you know, where, where it took you and, and where you, where you're going in our next segment, the mid COVID set. But before we do, of course, as always, it's time for our guests unsponsor. The unsponsor is an unpaid sponsor. It's an awesome company run by awesome people who produce an awesome product. They don't pay for this, this shout out, but they deserve one. So Albert, tell us who is today's show not brought to us by. So today's show is not brought to us by Maylee Studios. Um, and they're a soft silk goods company um, by four women um, in Hong Kong. They make scarves. They make pocket squares with beautiful prints. Um, uh, they're good friends of mine, and we've collaborated uh, on a lot of products uh, for our mask company. Um, and they are really hardworking people, and their designs are beautiful. They ship worldwide. So... Uh, Check them out. And that's uh, MaileyStudios.com. That's M-A-E-L-I Studios.com. And they ship Correct. globally. Yep. All right. So we already started to touch on it a little bit that you had your first 14-day quarantine. That, mm-hmm. that was a, a phrase that kind of ca- caught my ear because I don't think I've had anyone else on the show who's had more than one 14-day oh, I have, I've had three. Three. All right. So, <laughs> wow. Uh, so you've had at least four, 42 days in quarantine in the, in the last year. That, mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's a lot. I mean, that's more than 10% of the year spent in quarantine. Yeah. Uh, wow. Almost. Yeah. A month and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what I want to talk about is when you decide you and, and your family, I believe decided mm-hmm. to start mask lab. So actually pretty early on. Um, so uh, back to the new, new uh, sorry. So back to the Lunar New Year celebration um, that I was talking to you about. Um, at that time, um, a lot of uh, my dad's businesses in China was affected. Uh, things were being closed. It didn't look very good. Um, so during the family dinner, he was like, well, I have access i think i can buy these two mask machines and i think we should pivot into making masks what do you guys think and this was early february so i said no you're crazy because um this is going to end soon uh and i'm going back to the u.s where this is not like not a thing at all um <laughs> so so that was the beginning of it but uh my dad did he uh, listen or did he buy them? Uh, no, time. he didn't. He didn't listen. Um, and that's very typical of him. Uh, he has a lot of cool, crazy ideas, but he, uh, he's, he, he's, he, he executes really quickly, you know? So, uh, that's something that he, he's really good at. Uh, and this time he kind of made the right decision because, uh, by the time I got back to the U S and everything looked very serious, I called him back uh, my brother was also, you know, in the U.S. at the time, and we're like, okay, uh, we believe you now. Let's do it. And he's like, guess what? Uh, the machines are already on their way. Um, so, uh, so he said we we set up this operation fairly quickly um, in March. So in the beginning of March, he was looking for a space 
uh, in Hong Kong to turn into this factory. Um, it had to be in Hong Kong because we couldn't go into China uh, because of the quarantine and we didn't really have uh, a manufacturing uh, staff. Uh, um, so we didn't really have a home base anywhere else. So it was the easiest to just do it in Hong Kong. Um, so it took about two weeks to get a, uh, to find a garment warehouse uh, and convert it into um, an ISO certified clean room, put the machines in. And by that time, uh, by, by the time everything is set up, I was on my way back. So uh, I remember the date, it was almost a year ago, March 26th was when I said, hey, uh, let's do this. Um, let's sell direct to consumers because the original idea was just to put the machines there, see who wants to buy because there's a mask shortage. But my idea was the mask shortage probably won't last uh, more than a few months because just like any gold rush, especially in this day and age, everybody's going to be doing it. And sure, sure, surely enough, there were actually 180 plus companies in Hong Kong doing this at the same time, we, which we later found out. Um, but the, the good thing is uh, we decided to do direct to consumer almost from the get-go. We had a brand. So that's, that's how I came up with the name Mask Lab. Uh, we had a few different ideas of what that brand would mean. Uh, and we pivoted uh, every month until we finally found what really stuck. And um, uh, for those who don't know, Mask Lab is now known as the biggest, uh, most protective, yes, yet most stylish mask manufacturer in uh, Asia and pretty much around the world as well. Um, we, we have the most protective masks and that's, we, a, that's a, that's a pretty big statement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now I know that you've opened mask stores during the pandemic, a time when most businesses have actually been shying away from committing capital to brick and mortar. Can you share how you capitalized on the upheaval and uncertainty in the market, specifically commercial real estate and what, what, what went into the decision to open multiple locations? Right. Um, I, I want to give a little background on that. Um, so we have a, we have a lot of stores now, uh, but when we first started, we were an online only brand for about six months. So uh, we tested out the concept online and we had a really royal, uh, sorry, we had a really loyal following online for a while before we decided, okay, we have product market fit. Let's try to, um, let's try to acquire more customers in other channels. And uh, we decided to do it in Hong Kong because e-commerce penetration is relatively low in Hong Kong. It's a very densely populated city. So there's a store, um, you know, underneath everybody's apartments. So uh, that's something that's the preferred shopping method for a big chunk of the city. Um, and was and it like at, that even, even during the pandemic? Yes. In the uh, yes. I think um, in Hong Kong, it's, been fairly controlled uh there there's been four major outbreaks where uh restaurants had to close but people were still shopping outside um and when we say outbreaks it's like 100 cases a day that's um so like relatively relative to the world it's not terrible it's not great but um it's it's still livable so most places are still open for and what's the population of hong kong seven million okay Seven million and a hundred a day is kind of the the peak there. Yes. Okay. Because in the U.S., uh, we have a population of about three hundred thirty million, and at our peak, we were at uh, about two hundred twenty five thousand cases a day. Yeah, that's <laughs> that. That was pretty nuts. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. 
uh, let's see, that's what, so we had 50, we have about 50 times the population, a little less. And uh, if I'm doing my math right here, we had an outbreak rate of about uh, 2,250 times higher than what the peak was in Hong Kong. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> and, and we didn't so. shut down. Okay, great. Anyways, uh, ba back to you. Uh-huh. Um, oh, yeah. So uh, Hong Kong is a very interesting place because uh, the year before um, COVID-19, it was the year of the protests. So a lot of retail stores, um, you know, were uh, damaged from the protests and also uh, the protests prevented a lot of travelers from coming. So uh, retail, the retail business went uh, went down a lot in the year prior to COVID, and COVID nineteen kind of did it in. So retail real estate, uh, yeah. So retail real estate uh, in twenty twenty was extremely uh, cheap um, in comparison. So Hong Kong had one of the most expensive real estate markets in the world uh, prior to to this. But retail storefronts became pennies on the dollar. Um, places were down 80% from its peak. Um, so in August of 2020, uh, we were fresh off of a, an e-commerce success. Uh, so we tried our luck out in this pretty busy intersection, which was still relatively inexpensive. The rent was... Uh, I don't want, we're not supposed to talk about the numbers, but it was 90% down from, from the top. Um, and uh, we, we, and we did our math and we thought if we can do just a fifth of the business that we do online in this location a month, we break even. So it seemed like a pretty small risk. And um, usually, uh, usually we would have to sign a year, two year contracts well, actually, no, before COVID, it was two years minimum for any uh, storefront. That's uh, what I was going to say. Contracts. Commercial real yeah. estate, you, usually you're, you're locked in longer five years. than you would be on a residential lease. Right. Uh, but, there's, uh, but rent is so low right now um, that people, that's landlords don't really want to commit to that rent for a long time. They think it's a, it's a temporary thing. So most leases that we've signed are just six months. We only have one lease that's a year, but that's also coming up soon because we signed that in, in September. So uh, uh, all our leases are up before um, Q4 this year. And do you plan on renewing? I, I should be saving this for the post-COVID segment, but I, I, I don't care. Well, let's do it now. <laughs> I'm dying to know. Do you plan yeah. on renewing a lot of these locations? So... Kind of uh, our, our flagship in the CBD area um, called Central, like the, the, the middle Central the middle of the city, the Central Business District. Yes, I just realized CBD means something else entirely now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, Central Business District in, in Hong Kong, that location is still doing really well. Um, so wh wh what happens after our six months to year contract is it turns into month to month. And we're happy to keep renewing it until uh it doesn't make sense economically anymore so we did that we renewed for our first ever store actually we just closed uh last week um but it was it, the lease had expired a month prior to that uh we just kept going until we saw that you know it's probably best that we close it down the business here would probably just go to our other stores and our online stores surely um it 
we did the calculation and made more sense to not have the overhead of that location. And, and how many locations do you have currently? And in how many countries? We have, um, we have about, let's say five, 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 four, 11 locations, um, four in Hong Kong, um, five in Taiwan and, uh, two in Korea. 11. So 11 currently. And you said it took about six months before you decided to open up those, uh, the, the first physical retail location yeah, well, six ish months, six ish month. So, uh, like I said, we started in March, uh, we started looking into, uh, opening a new store in August. We officially opened that first store in September, uh, on, on September 19th. So and are these like kiosks or like Apple stores or like, Oh, I haven't sent you the photos, huh? No, they're flagship stores. They're, uh, you know, 800, 12,000, uh, 1200 square foot, uh, stores that just sell masks and nothing else. That's, that's pretty good size. That's, that's a lot bigger than I, than I was originally envisioning. One of the things that you mentioned earlier that kind of that I wanted to come back to was you said you, you established a, a brand following you, that there was a, a good amount of brand loyalty and I have no numbers to back this up, but mm -hmm. I feel like that's not the case in the U S like I, I, I don't see a lot of people rocking like Lululemon uh, face masks or, or something where it's like, you, you see a lot of other brands that are, you know, uh, apparel that's, that is very identifiable. Yep. And it seems like for the most part, that's not the case here in the U S how were you able to establish so quickly a brand with a following in just those short few months early in the pandemic? Yeah. So I think Hong, uh, starting in Hong Kong was kind of a blessing. Um, and, it's, it was something we later realized Hong Kong is a very different market. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, because face masks in Hong Kong here are, is a different product. Um, people started wearing face masks a lot during the protests. Um, so there's a certain affinity to wearing face masks. Um, and even before COVID, people were... Um, researching on face masks, what's the best face mask to filter out tear gas, you know, what's the best face mask to filter out, whatever. Um, so when COVID-19 hit, it was just uh, basically an extension of that. Wow. Um, so there was already a few uh, online communities that were 30, 40, 50,000 people on Facebook groups, um, on, you know, uh, on discussion boards in on Hong Kong websites where they review masks. They talk about the best mask brands. Uh, that combined with a severe distrust of the government, they would never wear anything that the government handed down because a lot of it were bad quality, which, which by the way, was true. Um, a lot of uh, the, the government hand, hand downs were just uh, from mask factories that were of, uh, of questionable quality. Um, so people were act very aware of that and, uh, people wanted to to find local products, um, uh, masks that are made by a local company that were also reputable. So people were actually come, uh, buy them, test them themselves with different ways with, you know, people were coming up with crazy ways like trying to uh, cutting the mask open and then uh, try to try to use it to pick up uh, like 
pieces of paper uh, because the, one of the filtration methods is electrostatic. So if you can do it really well, then that means the, the mask has a really good filter. So little crazy things like that. Uh, so back to the question, there, uh, I just demonstrated that there's a really vibrant online community around the specific product of masks. Now you just have to get in front of them. So right. uh, we, uh, we researched uh, many different ways and we, we just tried and iterated uh, I think my background in digital marketing really helped. Um, at the time, you couldn't use Facebook ads. You couldn't, well, actually still now, but I think it's a little more lenient now, but you couldn't do Google ads. So all of the PPC, uh, pay-per-click uh, strategies were basically rendered useless for this category. They were trying to prevent fraud, which totally understand. So we had to do it very organically. Uh, luckily in Hong Kong, basically if you started um posting about it and sending press releases to uh, a few newspapers, online newspapers who are actively looking for this uh, con content, you get featured almost immediately. Um, so we found a few outlets and publications that were on the lookout for this. And, um, you know, we just started releasing it to them and the, it, it right. started picking up from it, there. It, it seems like by removing the ability to sort of buy your way into um into in, into the mainstream like you can like right now like in the u.s you're just like okay i'm just gonna buy i'm gonna put a uh, hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars or or you know x number of dollars into facebook ads and i'm gonna immediately get in front of all these people by being forced to approach it from an organic standpoint and be and, and being sort of um, mandated into generating an organic following it makes it i think more of a defensible position because someone can't just solve the problem with money. They have to actually put in a ton of effort. And at that point you've already started to capture part of that a, a initial um, market share. Is, is that accurate? You think? Yes, absolutely. Um, it was actually a blessing in disguise. I remember when my uh, Facebook ad account got suspended because I was trying to post mask ads and I was right. like, wow, how am I going <laughs> to grow this business? And then, it forced me to, to look for organic ways to grow. And honestly, that was probably the right way to grow. Wow. Um, and yeah, by, by the summer of last year, we, we had hundred thousands, uh, about 150, 200,000 active customers on our website. Um, so we wow. decided and a lot. That yeah. is incredible. One other question I had about the ability to, about being in, in Hong Kong specifically and how you think that was like a, ended up being a great place to be a because of the manufacturing and then B because people were already sort of primed to wear masks, albeit for different reasons that I uh, probably should have been more, more aware of. And then I, I thought there was kind of a, a third reason, which is I think that wearing masks for the sake of public health is something that was that already existed in East Asia, like, I mean, even just when I went to, um, I went to Singapore, that was the last, the last international trip that I went on. I think I was in January of, of 2020 and people on the subway actively wearing their, their mask either for their own health or because they felt like they were sick and wanted to prevent and, and wanted to protect those around them. It's very much yeah. the, the opposite here in the U S it's like, it's my right to spread this oh, yeah. whatever <laughs> spread this common cold to whoever well, i want 
Uh, <laughs> do you think that 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 played in at all in terms of like kind of priming your market to be ready for something like Mask Lab? Yeah, absolutely. I think Hong Kong, especially because it was where SARS uh, hit uh, in 2003. And at the time, that was when the first mask uh, craze happened. Uh, people were scrambling left and right to, to buy masks um, in 2003. So for the last 17 years, uh, people have been wearing masks when they're sick or, uh, or when you know, they think they're going to... They're, they think they're going to, a, to to an area where they might infect other people. Um, so I think having that uh, culture definitely helped. You, you don't have to convince people to wear masks. Uh, whereas in the U.S., I think a, a big part of what we were doing was still educating people on the uses of masks and how to wear them and uh, wh why our masks are beneficial. I would like to add, though, I think the U.S. has come a really long way since last year. A lot of people are mask fanatics. I did a podcast, actually, uh, an interview on uh, with a YouTuber uh, in Minnesota uh, a, a month ago, and he was an, a mask influencer. And he had thousands of people who follow him to uh, hear about, you know, masks, uh, like what masks are great and whatever. And uh, he interviewed us because he really liked our masks. So A mask influencer. That's the thing, though. Speaking thing. of things that didn't exist uh, <laughs> until recently. Yep. Wow. Well, that that kind of brings me to my next point, which is as we kind of start to move into the into the post COVID set, a a mask influencer doesn't seem like a secure job field. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't oh, know. No, I mean, he's he's just doing this as a hobby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. No, no, I'm, I'm just I'm thinking like you know, whatever following he has now, I I think the the house would probably have odds against him having even uh, even maintaining status quo number of followers in the next you know six to twelve months, and I would imagine that it would probably plummet. But I don't know. I I could be I could be way way off. Who knows? My my question for you is, and I'm sure you can kind of see where this is going, is as the as you and I were talking about before we started recording, the U.S. is we're adding a million and a half, two million new people to the vaccination rolls basically every every day. Mm -hmm. We're uh, I think uh, Biden and Fauci both came out I think it was last week and said that they anticipate what um, uh, total availability to the population for vaccines mm -hmm. by May possibly maybe early June, but as early as May now, which means that, or which means masks could stop being a, a mandated thing and could even fade out even as, you know, as early as like the end of 2021. How do you forecast that affecting your business and what plans are you making to adapt? Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, that's funny. You mentioned that. I just saw the mask mandates are, are already, uh, over in, uh, in Texas, right? Texas so, and Florida. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so I think it's already starting to happen. And, uh, the good thing is we actually planned this to be a short-term thing from the very beginning. Um, in fact, we are already way past when we thought this was going to end. We thought it was going to end end of 2020. Um, so most of our uh, investments were planned accordingly. Um, we haven't made any major capital investment in 2021, 
And I think, I think the mask wearing thing, um, it will slowly uh, die out uh, as people get vaccinated and as mask manda- mandates get removed. Uh, but I think it would still last. Uh, I think there are still countries in the world who need masks um, probably for the next year or two. Um, so we believe that we're probably not going to grow our business, uh, but our, at our current scale, which is not huge, it's not small either, but it's not huge. We can still supply uh, many countries until uh, it's over. So um, the, the goal here is just to be very flexible and, you know, our leases are very short. So um, as soon as we see some stores uh, having uh, a drop in sales, we'll probably immediately um, close, close them down. Um, You'll pull the plug keep, within a month. Yeah, we can pull the plug in within a month. So it's, it's easy there. Um, and as for the factory, uh, you know, w- w- it's, mask making is a fairly automated process. So we don't have a ton of overhead there. Um, you know, we, we will just keep the same uh, machines running until this is all over. And uh, just to, just to reiterate on one point is this is like something I'm happy, happy about. Like if the business dies, but we're able to have our old lives back, I'm a, I think I'm a hundred percent. Okay with that. Right. You, you, <laughs> You were able to capitalize on what is obviously, um, you know, uh, a a a worldwide pandemic. I don't I don't even need to, yeah. need to describe it. I feel like it's yeah. kind of self explanatory. But you were able to capitalize on the on the short term opportunity, and you've set up the company from day one to be to capitalize on on it being a short term opportunity. You started with ecom, which is inherently flexible. You have you were able to wait until you saw that it would it wouldn't just be a, a two-month or a three-month thing so mm-hmm. five months in you start looking six months in you get a, you get leases but you have leases that are basically pennies on the dollar at a you know an absolute fraction of the price that they would be in normal circumstances and with that couple that with short-term leases which allows you to basically not have to over not not have to commit not have to gamble not have to like, you know, roll the dice on it being, uh, is this going to be a thing for two or three years like you would normally when you're deciding to open a, a restaurant or a brick and mortar you know, clothing store? This is like, well, we know this is going to be around for six months, so we'll take it for six months and then we'll just go month to month after that. And if things are still bad, then the, then the landlords will probably be happy to extend it month, month to month. And if not, then great, then you're, you're not really committed. And even if you had to just let it ride for two or three months by itself, you're paying a 10th of the price that you would be normally. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, and and I think that's an an interesting point that you made that yet. And this was a, I, I apologize for that, for making such a, um, in America centric, uh, uh, comment about how we know, what are you going to do when, when the pandemic starts to fade away again, like you and I were talking about before we started recording, the U.S. is you know basically pay, bought its way to the front of the line, mm-hmm. and you know by having F- Pfizer and Moderna and and Johnson and Johnson and and these American brands, um, and then the 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 war chest to go and and kind of commit to these um, large numbers. We're going to be immunized, and we should 
be seeing theoretically a huge decrease in COVID numbers and we should be able to return to normal everyday life as like we talked about earlier this year. But that unfortunately is not going to be true for large swaths of the world who I've seen forecasts saying that uh, some countries won't be vaccinated until 2024, 2025, which means you will have an opportunity, I suppose, um, to continue to, to there, there will be a, a demand for masks through, through that period. One question is you're currently selling in generally wealthier parts of the country or parts of the world. Correct. Do you plan to, do you have, do you have to make any pivots with like with the materials and and kind of in order to, um, to achieve the price point in order to compete in those um, kind of less wealthy countries around the world that we think that the, that COVID will continue to um, exist in for the next couple of years. So I think, um, well, first of all, we are already uh, distributing to a lot of countries that are, I, I wouldn't say third world countries, but they're uh, much less wealthier than the countries we're used to. Um, we haven't really made any adjustments uh, because we don't really want, from the very beginning, we don't want our brand to compete on pricing. And even if you're talking about um you know, if you ever talking about less wealthier countries, our prices don't really break the bank that much. Um, you know, it's less than a dollar per mask. I understand in some really uh, poor countries that may be a problem, but we, we're not there yet. Um, and I think in most countries, there's a sec- section, uh, there's a section of the population that really care about masks that care about being stylish, um, that will wear our masks. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't really want to, like I said, we, uh, again, we don't really want to compete with pricing because even in Hong Kong, um, there's a price war with ex- existing. Right, there masks. are uh, 180 competitors. Correct. There's 180. And when, and when you compete companies. on price, it's a race to the bottom because you become yeah, a commodity. Absolutely, absolutely. It, it is already. There's a huge oversupply of masks around the world. So, um, I, I want to also add because of that, there's there's a huge waste. There's going to be an environmental uh, impact. So we're actively developing a way to make our protective masks uh, reusable and washable as well. And we're getting close on that. Uh, and th- that I believe will will carry us um, for a few few more months or maybe a, a year or two. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we've added a, a new section to to the podcast where uh, we have this uh, amazing researcher um, intern, Kaylin. And so we have a, a three quick questions for you. It's called uh, Kaylin's questions. So okay. n- number one, um, what, I guess, uh, how easy or difficult was the transition from outdoor furniture and, and cushions to face masks and what, and specifically, what kinds of similarities are there? What are the th- what are the things that you were able to that segued well um, from from one into the into the next? Okay, um, this is actually the the two parts tie into each other. It was relatively easy, um, and the reason why is because in outdoor furniture we make uh, cushions that are waterproof, and in order to do that, we use something called a non woven fabric inside the cushions. That material is the same material used on face masks. So, uh, oh, interesting. Yeah. So there's that part, and the second part, our business had has been um, focused on the designs of masks. So we have prints 
uh, very vibrant, colorful prints. And in order to achieve that, there's only, you can't do the regular mask roller printing. So we had to invent a new way of printing on masks, which is derived from the technology that we're used to uh, printing outdoor cushions called uh, transfer printing or heat transfer. Right. So those two th things actually made it a lot easier for, for us to get into the mask business and thrive. Wow. Which is I, 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 yeah, I, I, I never would have thought of those things, but I'm, I'm <laughs> glad I'm glad uh, I asked for Kalen. All right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you feel that there is pressure on you and your business, especially because Mask Lab is the number one mask company in, in Hong Kong and, you know, are arguably the, the world? Well, I wouldn't say we're the number one company in the world. It, we, we're probably... Uh, a, number one in our, in our, our niche around the world, but yeah, like, exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Qual quality and style. Yeah. Uh, Cause I wouldn't want to number one in the, in the hybrid. I'm that way, you know, That's on, on this podcast, you're number one. Okay. Appreciate it. Um, yeah. So sorry. What was the question again? Uh, basically, I was, I was you, just taken aback by that. You, I don't want to <laughs> be known as like that. That's what I'm claiming. Uh, no, no. <laughs> Of course, uh, I guess b being in that upper echelon, do you feel that as though there is pressure on you in any way from like a from a public um, from public standpoint to, to like achieve a certain level of quality or the way that you comport yourselves moving forward oh. um, in, in next steps, maybe? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think um, by this point, a lot of our customers and a lot of our fans have uh, known us to be uh, our, whatever products we come out with, they're beautiful and they're protective and they're usually really innovative. Um, so for the longest time, uh, we were the first ones to come out with uh, design masks, color masks. Uh, we were the first ones to open physical stores. We're the first ones to allow mix and match, uh, pick 10 of any design mask in the retail store um, for this price. So all these innovative ideas, we were the first. So there's kind of a pressure that, you know, whatever we come out with has to be really good. So back to what I was talking about, the reusable washable mask that we're developing, uh, we're taking our time to make sure this is going to be like the best uh, reusable mask that the planet's going to see, uh, mainly because we have a reputation of just being uh, uh, being pioneers in, in, our, in this industry. Right. That's sort of the flip side of the coin if you're going to avoid competing on price as a commodity, then you have to have uh, added value elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. In, and that's basically a, a, what the what the brand is made up of, which is mm -hmm. you, you're you're attaching to your name quality and innovation and consistency across the board. Yep. We kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, and this is the the last of of Kalen's questions, but. What are your expectations for for Mask Lab when the pandemic is quote unquote over? And I know that's that you know it's not like a January seventeenth, twenty twenty two. The the pandemic is over. It's obviously going to be an, an evolution and it will fade away. But you know there could be the the next round. Uh, you know, God forbid. But. Um, what are kind of your expectations for Mask Lab in, in these next couple of years? Um, how might it vary between the different countries that you have your customers in? And do you see it? Um, how, how does it, how do, how do you think it will affect your original business of outdoor furniture 
or is that just, are they completely separate standalone businesses at this point? Yeah, they're completely separate standalone businesses okay. at this point. Um, the teams that actually manage them, there's not a lot of uh, overlap. Um, okay. But do you I do think, anything with the, yeah. with the furniture? I personally do not. Um, my brother does. Uh, so Mask Lab is founded by me, my brother, uh, and my dad. And the two of them handle a lot of the furniture side. Uh, my brother, he does a lot of the cushions because he runs the factory in South Carolina, which where we make the cushions. So, um, yeah, so me personally, I haven't been that involved, but I do know that uh, it was also a, a very surprising thing because um, initially when the pandemic first started, we thought the business would be heavily affected, uh, but it turned out the sales actually started rising after the summer. Uh, mainly because people are home all the time and they wanted to make their patio or their uh, their yard look really nice. So since people were staying home all the time, the, the right. one category right. that was rising was- uh, Home Depot has never yeah. done better. Exactly, yeah. And Home Depot, our, our, our uh, patio furniture, that's our biggest customer. They're, uh, we're in Home Depot. So um, because of that, yeah, uh, the orders are going up, um, but it's also harder to manage because- um, we can't physically travel uh, without being quarantined. So we haven't been able to, um, well, they haven't um, been able to really go to the factories and make sure things are okay. So a lot of the, the orders, I believe, uh, are, we're, we're struggling to fill. So Wow. What a problem to have. <laughs> so you have outsized demand now for the business that you originally thought was going to get hit so hard that you were going to start a second business to sort of make up for that otherwise lost lost revenue and instead yeah. you now have the the thriving furniture business and the the world's greatest mask brand <laughs> my words not not yours okay um yeah uh, I, I guess I, I guess you could put it that way but um I, I wouldn't say the furniture business isn't affected uh because um the orders a lot of them, if you can't fill, you you you, you lose you them. You, you lose them. So we don't actually the, the revenue. It looks like interest is up. The revenue hasn't actually grown that much. Right. So that's something. Right. To take and I would assume that. I mean, that's a whole other podcast. I'm sure that we could talk about the the mm -hmm. furniture business. I don't know if it necessarily yeah. qualifies as the the small business uh, that we normally ha have on this show, but um, I mean, I, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there are, are, are a ton of extenuating circumstances there that. For especially from a supply side, it sounds like have made it much more difficult um, in, oh, yeah. in meeting meeting demand, which can be truly taxing when you have a partner like a Home Depot who's looking for gigantic POs to be filled quickly, timely, uh, and, and reliably. And if yeah. not, then someone else will step up to to fill those shoes. So I can see that being quite stressful. But, so there's another another point actually. Um, yeah, is, it's the value of the U.S. dollar going down uh, against uh, the Chinese yuan in the last year, and the prices were already set from the beginning of the pandemic. So just that alone, it's like a ten percent loss or something crazy like that. Wow, I hadn't even considered that. Again, living in this American centric. <laughs> mindset yeah so that that part was actually a pretty big deal um i think for not just our business i think for more most manufacturing businesses uh the the u.s dollar devaluing was uh was a big deal and, and across across the industries wow
Well, kind of as we as we wrap this up, one of my my last questions, I want to say last question, but it's never the last question, is what is your personal plan for these next sort of six months? Is it, is it Mask Lab? Is it going back to the the universal basic income genome sequencing? Where do you see yeah. yourself? So um, I'm still spending a lot of time on Mask Lab, but you know, you, you actually, uh, yeah, you mentioned the right things. Uh, I'm starting to pick it, pick that back up. Uh, f- investor interest is going up again, um, especially in the blockchain crypto world. I mean, we're seeing fifty-seven thousand dollar Bitcoin uh, just this week, um, and you know, there's so much there's so much innovation in that space again. So it's really exciting. I, I think I'm spending maybe thirty percent of my time. Uh, back in that space and as soon as um you know as soon as mask lab starts winding down i'll probably spend more time in, in that because uh in that space i'm just going for moonshots uh it's no longer you know like try to re- retain a you know like an e-commerce business it's more like how can i change the world with this uh technology so it's going to be a little different um it's probably going to be very painful until it gets better well in C, I've, I think I've alluded this, alluded to this in previous episodes. But the the plan is to have a season two of this show, basically having everyone back on fifty two weeks from when their original, from when their season one interview was. I am really excited to have you on because I feel like in in fifty two weeks from now, you could be, you could be doing anything. You could be the, yeah. you know, someone who just in just invented. Uh, a way that a mainstream way that is providing income to people all over the world, uh, <laughs> basically providing their, their, you know, opting into sharing their personal data uh, in a way that, you know, through, through blockchain technologies that I don't fully comprehend, uh, mm-hmm. but I'm excited to see what you do with them. Uh, and on, on that note, Albert, I just want to say thank you for coming on and sharing your story. Thank you, Grant. It's been fun. Thank you to my guest, Albert Chen of Mask Lab. If you want to see the world's most stylish face masks, check out masklab.us. Time now for my unsponsor, aka a small business doing everything right. They don't pay for a shout out. Heck, they don't even know it's coming, but they certainly deserve one. Also, shout out to my bean-loving friend, Kana, because today's show was not brought to you by a dozen cousins, makers of soulfully seasoned beans. From Virginia to Venezuela, there are few dishes loved more universally than a good pot of beans. Their founder grew up eating a delicious melting pot of Creole, Caribbean, and Latin American cooking, and started a dozen cousins to share those delicious, authentic, cultural recipes. With the name honoring his daughter and her 11 cousins, check out adozencousins.com. Speaking of shopping small, check out smallbizgoneviral.com for a rapidly growing list of unsponsors and the small businesses run by our guests. There are now over 100 businesses listed that you've probably never heard of, but guaranteed will be impressed by. So vote with your wallet for the world you want to live in and shop small. Thank you, Peggy Bunker and the Bunkmates for this theme song, Worldometer, NPR, Robin Hood Snack, and Morning Brew Daily News emails, Statista, and my wonderful researcher, Kaylin Kwan. Someday this will all be over. But until then, fight the fatigue, social distance, and wear a mask, and if you can, get the vaccine. From an office in North Pacific Beach, recorded and edited before and after work hours, I'm Grant LeBeau, and this is Small Biz Gone Viral.
And we're back as always with our quick bonus lightning round. Four quick questions for you, Albert. Question number one, what is your least favorite part about entrepreneurship? Looking at my phone in the morning because I work across time zones. So every time I look at my phone, when I first wake up, it's always somebody looking for me or some fires I have to put out. M minus the, the time zones that you have to work through, that really resonates with me. The, the, the phone in the morning. Question number two, what is your least favorite question about your business to receive at a party and why? And don't mind the party part. I know no one goes to parties. <laughs> What's your least favorite question about to receive about your yeah. business? Uh, aren't you worried about the vaccine? Uh, no, uh, because I'd rather have my old life back than sell masks. <laughs> yes. What is something you feel like being a small business owner that non-small business owners or, or people who don't necessarily live in that in the entrepreneurial world that you do um, have, would they have a hard time understanding about your specific work stresses? Well, um, the fact that you don't have any holidays, um, like you might go on a holiday, but you're always looking at your phone and you constantly are thinking about your business. There's never a break. And that's, that part is highly stressful. That might be the true definition of reaching that next stage in terms of size of business. That next level of success is if you can go on a true vacation and unplug for a long period of time and have enough infrastructure in place below you. I'm looking forward to you're that. You're fine. <laughs> <Damn>. <laughs> what a size. Anyway, uh, last question. What are the biggest upsides of entrepreneurship for you? The, uh, I would say the, the ability to sculpt company culture from scratch to the way you want it. Yes. Yes. I love it. Uh, Albert, I, I thoroughly enjoyed every minute of this interview. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.